and then uh, went on, you know, a couple of other assignments. And then, of course, you know, Saddam Hussein was captured in December of 2003. CIA asked the FBI to take the lead. And then shortly after, the FBI identified me or selected me to, to lead the interrogation of Saddam Hussein. White Horses, Your Mom's Cookies, and Jiu-Jitsu, all on this episode of the Assyrian Podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 197. This is Steve, and I'm excited to introduce you to George Pirro. George Pirro was born in Lebanon and immigrated to the United States in the 1970s. After finishing high school, he enlisted in the Air Force and eventually joined the FBI. Now, we've interviewed a lot of people on the Assyrian podcast, but we've never sat down with someone who interrogated the former president of a country, but not just any country, the Assyrian homeland of Iraq. Of all the people in the United States government, George Pirro, an Assyrian, was chosen to spend seven months with Saddam Hussein after he was captured. In typical Assyrian podcast fashion, we'll explore George's upbringing, his life, his family, and then we'll talk a lot about what he talked to Saddam Hussein about and what that experience was like and what he's learned. And then we'll find out what he's up to these days, which includes writing a book about interrogating the former president of Iraq. So I'm excited to bring this episode to you. And with that being said, here is George Pirro. Thank you so much, George, for coming on to the Assyrian podcast. Thank you. I'm actually very excited to be part of it. It's funny because right now when I just met you, I feel like I know you so well. Well, we did both grow up in Turlock, but also I watched like hours of your videos and have been reading about you. So it's such a honor and pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Yeah. So I wanted to begin with actually you moved to the United States from Lebanon when you were 12 years old. Yes. We were fortunate enough to uh, immigrate to the United States in uh, July of 1979. So my family and I were able to flee Lebanon. And fortunately, my uncle was the Monsignor of the Assyrian Church here in Turlock. So he had become a U.S. citizen and as a result was able to sponsor us. And we immigrated legally uh, at that time. Can you share, because I wasn't able to learn a lot about this, but what was Lebanon like? So prior to the war, you know, Lebanon was one of the most beautiful countries in the Middle East. Uh, you know, it was considered, you know, the, the Paris of the Middle East, uh, and it was an incredible tourist destination. Uh, tourism was its biggest industry. Uh, unfortunately, in the mid-70s, the Civil War broke out, and then conditions deteriorated very, very quickly. It was a civil war that was divided among uh, religious lines, and as the civil war continued, the, the living conditions, the environment uh, became more and more difficult. Do you feel like, do you have fond memories of growing up there? I do. I do have very clear recollection of growing up in Lebanon, both the prior to the war and, you know, unfortunately during the war. I remember, you know, some of the uh, difficult periods during the war where we would have to hide in the bomb shelters and you know, the experiencing, you know, that kind of a, uh, a war zone, for a lack of better term. So you know, I have a clear recollection of that. And you know, 
know, the difficulties and challenges that uh, that we faced, everything from no electricity to sniper fire to uh, bombings, you know, living under those kinds of uh, conditions. And did you have like an Assyrian community in Lebanon that you were a part of? Oh, absolutely. Very, very similar to Turlock. So we lived in a in a, an Assyrian neighborhood where we had our church. And as far as I can recall, almost everybody that lived in that neighborhood were, uh, were Assyrian. This is a first for me, interviewing an FBI agent. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And one of my goals is to get you to say something like, I'm not allowed to share that, you know? So I, I'm sure that's going to happen. Okay, cool. Good. So... What's really fun for me is you came here at 12 and like you just did well, like you were able to go into, um, I know for your education, you went and got your uh, bachelor's in criminal in criminal justice, criminal justice. Yes. yes. And, and then you became a police officer. Yes. Here in the Central Valley for nearly 10 years before having the opportunity to uh, join the FBI. And when you came to Turlock, what, what was it like growing up here for you? Well, at first, it was very, very different than, than Beirut, Lebanon. We loved Lebanon, uh, loved growing up in, in Lebanon. In spite of the civil war, we, were, we still, my brother, sister, and I didn't really want to leave Lebanon. Uh, and then, of course, immigrating to the United States, I remember we landed in San Francisco, and then we made that long journey <laughs> or drive from San Francisco to Turlock. And you know, so this is 1979. Turlock wasn't as developed as it is today right. and the uh, the route from San Francisco to Turlock isn't what it is today so as we were you know coming here you know, you, you know you're, we're seeing cows and all kinds of different things it was very rural at the time so you know we were wondering where we were moving to and of course what made it very difficult was when we immigrated here uh, we couldn't speak a word of English not a word so uh, you know there was a lot of adjustment yeah, uh, you know, to to you know to the move. So when we moved here in July of '79, it was during the Iran hostage time frame, which was a really difficult time to be in the United States and to be from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. You know, as you can imagine, you know, for most, they don't really know the difference between Iran and you know the other countries, and you know the the difference between uh, Farsi and Arabic and all of that. You know, they kind of culminate that area into one you know, one group. And so there was a lot of resentment at that time for anyone from, you know, from that region or that part of the world. So moving here in, in 79 was, was extremely difficult. I, I tell folks that was probably as bad uh, as during the time of 9-11 and the mm -hmm. resentment toward that region and to, you know, folks from, from, the, from the Middle East. So we moved here in July, August uh, 79 and in California school starts so we were immediately thrown into school at the time there was no English as a second language so it was one of those where you were just uh, thrown right into the mix with everyone else and forced to very quickly adapt so we naturalized when I was 17 and then I enlisted in the Air Force on my 18th birthday that's amazing and uh, and then served and then uh, became a police officer in Ceres, California here. And then when I got promoted to detective, I went back to school and pursued my bachelor's because I always aspired to join the FBI. 
but you can't join the FBI without a minimum of a bachelor's degree. So I went to school at night and on weekends while I was a detective in series and was fortunate to uh, acquire my bachelor's in four years. I was going full-time and working full-time. That's spectacular. That's, that's hard work and dedication. Yes. How many languages do you speak and when did you learn Arabic? So I learned Arabic, of course, uh, immediately in Lebanon. So at home, we spoke Assyrian, of course. To this day, we still continue to speak Assyrian. It's, uh, we grew up with the understanding and appreciating the importance of the Assyrian language and the history and the legacy that's tied to the language. So we were taught to only speak Assyrian at home because, again, uh, the only way that the language will continue to exist is if it's passed from generation to, to generation. So at home, we spoke Assyrian. Uh, outside of the home, we spoke Arabic. And prior to the war, you know, we were fortunate enough that, you know, we went to a French school. So I, we learned French at That's school. That's right. I noticed that as well. I was like, where yeah. did you learn French? <laughs> yeah, so Arabic outside of the home and then French at, uh, uh, at school. And of course, Arabic, you know, because it is the national language in, in, in Lebanon. But French is also a, a recognized or Lebanon is considered a French speaking country because it was a French colony for, you know, for many years prior to its uh, independence. So and then when we came here, learned English. That is amazing. So you've got a knack for learning languages then. I did. It's getting harder as you get older. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other question is that you joined the Air Force on your 18th birthday. What what was your passion for that that got you to do that? Well, I always uh, was interested in the military and law enforcement. I always wanted a career tied to either military or law enforcement. Uh, I always was uh, drawn to adventure and you know that type of a career. So a recruiter came to the high school and, and I started talking to the recruiter and got me really uh, motivated or kind of uh, tugged at my desire to want to, you know, pursue that kind of a uh, career path. Do you feel when you were growing up, you were all about justice? Like you had an innate sense for doing the right thing and, and holding, holding a certain standard? Well, I mean, I, I definitely say I got my values and character from my parents, especially from, you know, from from my dad, you know, so recognizing the importance of, you know, doing the right thing and all of those things. I wouldn't say it was a sense of justice. It was more a sense of adventure. And, OK, you know, the, you know so that's what it uh, you know, drew me to both military and and law enforcement. I wanted a, a career that was exciting, that was going to be dangerous and, and adventurous, of course. I was influenced by TV and cop shows, and it kind of uh, made me want to pursue that type of a career. I, I definitely knew I didn't want a uh, a Monday through Friday, eight to five type uh, career or uh, a business or sitting behind a desk or anything like that. Yeah, that that sounds so much fun. I mean, just, just hearing you say that, I'm like, oh, okay, now that makes more sense of, I'm going to fly a plane, I'm going <laughs> to fly a jet or any of that. Exactly. And then as I was listening to some different stories, there was a bank robbery that made you think, ooh, this is exciting. I want to do more of this kind of work. Sort of. So I was uh, fortunate. I was promoted to detective uh, series PD. And my first week as a detective, literally the second day as a detective, the Wells Fargo in, in series on 3rd Street actually was robbed. So I responded to the, to the bank robbery and met a very young FBI agent in the course of the investigation, uh, uh, 
The FBI has jurisdiction to investigate bank robberies because most financial institutions are federally insured. So the FBI has the authority or jurisdiction to investigate bank robberies uh, along with uh, local law enforcement. So I met Todd Aranaga, very young at the time, and, and we became friends. And I was so impressed by Todd. Todd was the model FBI agent, incredible character, work ethic, dedication. Uh, it, I was just so in awe of Todd, and I thought an organization that attracts or has this quality of a workforce, it, it made me want to want to join. So Todd helped recruit me and, and convinced me to, you know, that the FBI was a, a, a possibility or a path that I could uh, pursue. Because, you know, when I would tell people I was interested in the FBI, everyone initially told me no way. You know, the FBI isn't going to hire you. You're an immigrant. You're from the Middle East. You know, all of those things. Uh, I could have easily been dissuaded. Uh, I credit Todd in encouraging me that it, it was possible through hard work, dedication, to generate a success. To be a part of that level of uh, in this country, to be accepted. I mean, that must have been a pretty big challenge just in and of itself. So it sounds like Todd gave you access. Todd, like, helped you to believe in yourself that you could do it. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm you know very fortunate to, for Todd's not only support but friendship and, and mentorship. So, uh, you know, he told me it was it was possible, but not guaranteed. It's extremely difficult to get into the FBI, and I recognize that. But you know, if you want to be uh, the best at whatever uh, that you pursue, you know, for me in law enforcement, it was having the opportunity to join the premier agency in the world, which is the FBI. Yeah, I feel like you're one of those people that has this amazing knack to just lock in. <laughs> like when you have your target, you're like, I know what I want. I'm going to go after it. Yes, I, I get uh, laser focused and uh, I'm very determined. What was that transition like from being a detective to getting into the FBI? Like, how did that all go down? So... Immediately after graduating, I remember I got my bachelor's degree in, in November of uh, 1997. And in December, I applied. I, I literally immediately you applied. sent an application. Yes. So back then, it was actually... Uh, <laughs> you filled it out. Fill it out, yeah. It was uh, a written copy. So I filled it out and began the process in January 1998. Uh, the process took over a year. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to make it through. And in January of 99, I was informed that I had been accepted into the FBI and that I would be attending the FBI Academy in March of 1999. So I went off to, to Quantico, to the FBI Academy, where all new agents complete the FBI uh, Basic Academy. Uh, at that time, it was about 17 weeks in the academies where you find out where you will be assigned and... Uh, I believe it's around week six. So I got my orders and, and I was stationed in the Phoenix field office. That was my first assignment in the FBI. And what was your family thinking all this time that you were doing all these things? It was, you know, it was mixed. As you know, Assyrians, you know, we're very family oriented, very close. The idea of me moving away was, uh, was difficult for, for my family. But, you know, I'm very fortunate, you know, my, my family was extremely supportive and we're, uh, you know, we're behind me. And what, what kind of work were you doing? So uh, I expected to, to be assigned to the violent crime program because of my background as a police officer, uh, as a detective working 
crimes against persons or violent crimes, robberies, those types of things. So I thought I would be a natural fit for violent crime. But someone saw on my FBI training form uh, that I spoke Arabic. And then I was immediately assigned to the counterterrorism team uh, within the Phoenix field. Because office. of everything that was going on at that time? Yes, of course. You know, when you look at late 1990s or 99, 2000, Al-Qaeda had emerged as the biggest threat against the United States. It was at that point identified as the most significant uh, terrorist organization committed to attacking the United States. So our counterterrorism mission, its priority had, was quickly evolving to be you know, the Bureau's number one priority. That probably would have been helpful for you, at least in terms of the contribution you're making. You have special insight. You're able to understand the language. And then where did you go from Phoenix? So after uh, when I was first assigned to, to Phoenix, 9-11 occurred. So I was assigned to to be part of that investigative effort. Two of the hijackers were had been in Phoenix. Honey Hunter, who piloted uh, American Airlines Flight 77, which crashed into the Pentagon, had actually trained and lived for a period of time in, in Phoenix. So we had a, a significant aspect of that investigation. Um, so I was involved in, in that investigation and had, had the opportunity to be part of that overall FBI effort. And then shortly after that, uh, at the time, Director Mueller recognized the need to create a, an elite counterterrorism rapid deployment team that could go anywhere around the world to address counterterrorism threats against the United States, both you know domestically as well as internationally. Uh, it was a new new team that was going to be based out of the counterterrorism division in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, in, I believe it was uh, March of 2003, I'm, I moved to Washington, D.C. to be part of the fly team, as, as it, it was called. Were you going after more adventure? I was going after a, a lot more adventure. <laughs> hey, yes. I'm going to sign up for the team that <laughs> might get sent anywhere in the world at well, any my time. My first assignment was, uh, uh, was to Iraq. So I literally reported to the team in March of 03. And, uh, and as soon as I landed uh, on the team, I was dispatched to Iraq to be part of the, the first FBI team to deploy to, to the war zone. What was your first mission there? So there was a small FBI element. When we were sent there to, to support FBI priorities or missions, as well as to support uh, the U.S. military in its effort to, at that time, uh, locate high-value targets, uh, basically the folks that were on the, on the deck of cards that came out prior to the war, as well as develop any intelligence on any threats against U.S. forces or the United States uh, and, and its interests. You know, and one thing that I've been like really wanting to know is how were you able to, as an Assyrian, uh, the indigenous people of Iraq, uh, what was it like for you? Were you compartmentalizing? Yes, I have my Assyrian heritage and my Assyrian background who, you know, at one point the Assyrians ruled that whole area. And now you're there sort of from another country uh, going to solve a you know pretty challenging problem how did you process this i'll be honest it was such a chaotic time you really didn't have time to think about those kinds of uh things 
you know, the conditions were so difficult from the moment you got up to the moment you went to bed, you're, you're working. I found it, of course, extremely helpful being able to, to speak Arabic. There was a significant shortage of Arabic speakers, whether it was the Bureau, the CIA or the military. So I was being called upon to not only uh, support the FBI mission, but the CIA mission, the military would utilize me. And so it was so busy, you didn't have time to kind of, you know, think, you know, I, I ran into a lot of Assyrians and the Assyrians were amazing and wonderful. And as soon as I would see an Assyrian, I would, of course, immediately identify myself as an Assyrian. And I could see the the not only the support, but the the love and and the pride, you know, so that was very, very visible. But uh, on the other sense, when I would be uh, operational, you know, I speak Arabic with a heavy Lebanese accent. So, you know, occasionally the Iraqis would be questioning why the Lebanese army was supporting the U.S. military. And I'd be like, no, 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 I'm actually American. I just happened to you know, speak, uh, you know, a Lebanese version of Arabic. <laughs> Now, that's one of the things we've seen on the Assyrian podcast is Assyrian people, we know how to connect with people from all different backgrounds, all different walks. And that's that's just something so beautiful about who we are. Oh, absolutely. I tell folks uh, uh, when I meet an Assyrian, even though that's the first time I'm meeting them, you know, within a couple of minutes, it's like we've known each other for forever. Because mm -hmm. in, in reality, at some point, we're, you know, we're all related and, you know, we all come from the same cloth. It, it, you can't break that connection and that, that tie. Were you able to like stop at any of those Assyrian villages and get some Assyrian food or anything like that? Or no, no chance to do anything no, like so that? So early on, it was actually really cool because, you know, the insurgency uh, was not emerged yet so while you know there were still a lot of security concerns you know immediately after the fighting had ended uh, you know we were able to go into you know some of the neighborhoods and i would go to a lot of the shops that were either run or owned by assyrians and purchase things because again there was no food so if we wanted fresh bread or fresh food we would have to go into the city soda and of course i would seek out you know the assyrian stores and things like that one because of trust and confidence and safety and then other you know the other main reason i wanted to connect That's with right. Assyrians and, and <laughs> that is very cool so i think like at some point you ended up back in florida so i, I went to florida that was uh, way way later, later okay. right so and and so after my first tour in iraq i came back to the to the team and then uh, went on, you know, a couple of other assignments. And then, of course, you know, Saddam Hussein was captured in December of 2003. CIA asked the FBI to take the lead. And then shortly after, the FBI identified me or selected me to, to lead the interrogation of Saddam Hussein. I deployed to Iraq in January of 2004. And I was there until August of 2004. Returned back to the team in September. I was asked if I could help the Iraqis in building the criminal case against Saddam Hussein for his prosecution. As you can imagine, at that point, the Iraqis didn't have the infra infrastructure or the capability to build such a complex, difficult uh, uh, prosecutive uh, report or investigation against you know, someone as uh, as significant as Saddam. So the FBI. Uh, agreed to, to assist the uh, the Iraqis. So I led that effort and that took probably another five or six months. 
And then after that, I actually went off to Afghanistan for that next adventure. Jeez. And did a tour in, in Afghanistan. And then upon my return, I got promoted to supervisor. And then I ran the a joint terrorism task force in the Washington field office where uh, my team was responsible for protecting the national capital from international terrorists. So did that for a number of years and then was promoted again to assistant special agent in charge over the counterterrorism branch for the Washington DC area. And then, you know, kept getting yeah. promoted to eventually uh, having the privilege of being the special agent in charge, which is the head of the Miami field office. That's so, right. So that was in February of uh, 2014 and uh, extremely wonderful assignment, uh, very challenging because you can imagine extremely busy. It's Miami. But not only did we cover Miami or South Florida, uh, that entire region, but we also covered the Caribbean, Central and South America. All of that was worked out of my office. So you were the lead interrogator for Saddam. For the FBI, yes. For FBI with that specific person. Yes. And um, when you got that call, were you like, great, a new adventure? Or, or were you scared? Or were you, did you call your family? Tell us like what happened. There. So as you can imagine, I was terrified when I got the call. Anybody tells you that they wouldn't be, they're, they're lying, right? One, because I understood the magnitude of, of what was being asked and the importance of what was being asked. Again, having already been to Iraq, I understood the impact uh, that uh, the interrogation would have and the importance, and not only from my perspective, but really from the FBI's perspective. Because you know, one of the things that we learn in the FBI is that what we do belongs to the FBI. It's, it doesn't really belong to the individual. So it's always about the FBI and the FBI reputation and, uh, and legacy. So. I knew what was at stake and uh, and of course, you know, that was terrifying initially, you know, all of that kind of goes away and you start focusing on the task at hand and things like that. And very quickly, you know, those uh, concerns or fears, you know, disappear and you start getting uh, into the actual work and get very, very focused. What an amazing high honor of everyone in the country they they chose you they called you and said hey we want we want this guy to be the one who's going to go do this yes and no so i'll be uh you know i'm the uh, i'm very honest about that so you know one of the things that the fbi recognized uh you know for the interrogator to have any chance of success the interrogator had to be able to speak arabic mm-hmm. you know saddam didn't speak english uh, saddam only spoke arabic and this was going to be a long-term interrogation. So really for the interrogator to have any chance of success, the interrogator had to be able to speak directly with Saddam. So, you know, when you think about, or, or when the Bureau was looking through its agent population, looking for Arabic speakers, you know, at that time we had 12,000 FBI special agents posted around the world. When you start looking at how many of those really speak Arabic, and there's a, as you can appreciate there's a distinction between native speaker and non-native speaker. Mm-hmm. And for this assignment, they were looking for a native speaker because that was going to be much more valuable and, and beneficial. So when you talk about native speakers at that time, I, I think we had about a dozen. Yeah. So, you know, I wasn't really picked in comparison to the 12,000, you know, that, that pool of possible uh, candidates 
quickly. Yeah, not to mention you were on that special group that was going around the counterterrorism group, um, and you had all this experience. Yes, but I, I was very young at the time. I had less than five years in the FBI when That's I was right. selected. So That's what I was thinking because you mentioned 1999 is yeah. when you start, and then 2004, yeah. you're in Iraq doing probably the hardest job there is, right, at that time. At that time, yes. That is just wild. So one of the things that's fascinating as we dive into this part of your life of taking those six months or eight months, how, how long exactly were you with So I was in country nearly eight months. Uh, I was with him uh, roughly seven. And as we dive into that, it's sort of a, you don't sit down with too many people who you can say they got to know a dictator really, really well. So what's that been like for you as you interact with folks and say, yeah, I, I sat down and got to know this person really well. So, you know, uh, when you look at it from, you know, from the interrogation perspective, uh, you know, for me at that time, it was really focused on, you know, what our priorities were and then developing a, a, a successful plan mm -hmm. uh, to help achieve, you know, those, those priorities or, or goals. So very goal driven, very focused uh, plan that was uh, uh, designed around, you know, developing the rapport that was necessary and then over time gaining his trust and confidence and then wearing down his uh, his defense and then getting him to, uh, to cooperate and provide truthful information. People ask me, you know, what was that experience like? It, it, again, from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep, I worked. Every single day, no days off, you know, and the days, uh, easily were 16 plus hours. So when you think about it like that, it, you don't really, at that time, I didn't you know, get, have the opportunity to stop and think about, oh, what an, uh, what an awesome experience I'm, I'm interrogating Saddam Hussein. You know, you're so in the midst of it, you, you don't really have uh, that, uh, you know, the, not only that opportunity or even interested in kind of thinking like that. You're so focused and, and uh, and you get worn down because of the, the the pace and things like that. You know, now having the opportunity to reflect back, you know, when you look at Saddam, you know, he, you know, of course, one of the most brutal dictators of our modern time. Uh, but it, you're absolutely right. Very few in history have had the opportunity to sit down with someone uh, like Saddam and be able to not only uh, understand, you know, the decision making process. Uh, that led to, you know, three major wars and and cost uh, thousands of lives, but also, you know, the individual and you know what made him, uh, what he valued in life, you know, those kinds of things that you know very few people uh, would ever have the opportunity. Yeah, and um, I know I want to talk about this a little later, but I know you went to Georgetown and you got your master's degree. Um, in Arab studies, international security studies. This was after that. And I was, as I was looking at that, I was like, I wonder if he taught the courses and read the book <laughs> or wrote the books because. <laughs> I, I, I wish. <laughs> no, so, it was, uh, that was one of my goals, uh, personal goals. I, I always wanted to go to Georgetown. You know, when you talk about immigrating here and you know, only in the United States does someone like me have the opportunity to go to one of the most prestigious universities in the country and, yeah you know those kinds of things and it's an illustration of you know the values that my parents instilled in me and for me that was more about a personal goal 
than you know professional advancement congrats you know that's a Thank big you. big deal in and of itself and going back to um getting to know saddam hussein and, and spending time with him in the turlock journal march 2015 you were quoted as saying i spent a month and a half just building rapport with saddam hussein who spoke to the dictator five to seven hours every day for seven months straight without a single day off so how did you build rapport with him i build rapport by finding things that that the person interrogating or interviewing has no reason to lie to me about and would be willing to talk uh, about openly and honestly so that requires a little bit of research the better you know the person you're interviewing as as i can see from <laughs> the notes that you have and the research that you've done the better the interview is going to be it's the same principle so you know, when I was spending that month and a half, I talked about things that I knew he was going to be comfortable talking about, things that he would be willing to talk about, in a sense, would be very confident about talking or, you know, wanting to share because there were successes or, you know, things like that. So that's what I, I did for that first month and a half. And because what we wanted to know from Saddam, its value didn't diminish whether we got it on day one or day 365. It was just getting it. With Saddam, what we wanted to know was in his head and its importance, we were able to take our time. So yeah, so I spent a month and a half talking about things that you know, I knew he would enjoy talking about. Could you and share examples? So for example, the first topic of discussion was uh, a book that he wrote called Zabiba and the King. Most people don't know uh, Saddam was an author. He, he published four books mm. in Iraq. And as I understand, they were all bestsellers in Iraq. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> so the first the first topic was his uh, his first published book called Zabiba and the King. Again, as you think about it, who would not be proud of their first published piece and you know things like that? So I purposely picked that and I read it. So I was able to talk about not only the, the book, but the characters, the meaning behind the characters and things like that. Uh, I remember another, uh, another uh, discussion. You know, in the 70s, Iraq was, uh, was extremely uh, successful and was a, a model uh, for other countries, uh, for example, it had received uh, awards from the or recognition from the United Nations for its healthcare program, its educational program, and things like that. So we talked about, and and some of those, if not all of them, were as a result of his leadership and his effort to modernize and and develop Iraq uh, from nationalizing its uh, oil production to the you know developing its. Uh, highways and, and things like that. So we talked about all of those things. And of course, talked about, you know, the history of Iraq, which is the cradle of civilization, you know, some of the most important advancements in modern time have come out of uh, Iraq. And, and, you know, so uh, who would not be proud of that? And then again, at some point, I told him I was a Syrian. So for him, you know, he really connected with that because he tied Assyrians to Iraq mm -hmm. and you know so yeah for him it was you know it kind of and as soon as I introduced myself and I used my real name he knew I was Christian right uh, oh that's right and tell me why that was important for him or helpful for him because he told me because you know Christians I wouldn't have the the bias that you know the others 
had, right? So if I was Shi'i, of course, you know, he feared the, the resentment that the Shi'ite uh, population in Iraq had against them. Sunnis, he was concerned that they would not be loyal. You know, with a Christian, I was kind of neutral. And Lebanese background or descent kind of, again, made me neutral. You know, he didn't really care for anyone from the Gulf countries. He looked down at anyone from Egypt and Palestine and, you know, because they used to be the workforce in, in Iraq. So I just, uh, by accident, hap- happened to be or happen to have the the perfect background, Christian, Leb- you know, of Lebanese descent, so very neutral. Uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't have lost anyone to his government. I wouldn't have any bias toward him and any of those kinds of things. So it was it was perfect. That's that's pretty amazing. So can you share a little more of like what was the room or the conditions like? Yes. So initially the room was purposely uh, designed to create. A stressor and what I mean by that is uh, when you're building rapport you don't want your your subject to get too comfortable so there has to be some some stressors to create that off-balance feeling or a little bit of anxiety so the room uh, was designed to create that because the questions or the topic of discussions were not because they were things to help connect and build that rapport and so initially the room was uh, what you would picture an interrogation room would be like, right? The walls were painted white. It was cold. You know, the AC was uh, was on. There was no furniture, several steel chairs with no padding, no armrests. You know, the room was designed to kind of help create the environment that we were looking for. The room would, we would change the design of the room depending on the progression of the interrogation. So the room played a, a part of that. And it, and it goes into the whole strategy. So, but very, initially, very interesting. Yeah, initially the room was what you would expect, right? White walls, the mm-hmm. chair. You walk in there and you realize you're going to get interrogated. You know, you wanted to kind of create that environment, but then you sit down and you're talking about Zabiba and the king, or you know, the history of Iraq, Hammurabi, you know, Sargon, yeah. those kinds of things, and uh, and it and it kind of creates that. Uh, you know, that off-balance uh, perspective. So you had mentioned in some interviews that he was uh, very charismatic. He could be very charismatic. He could be very charming. He had an incredible sense of humor. He could be polite, very intelligent, but also he could get very, very angry too. Did he ever get upset with you? Oh, absolutely. Can you can you share more of what that uh, was? Well, I, I tell you, the first time I, I made him upset is I called him the former president of Iraq and he got really angry. And then I made a note to myself, don't use titles after that. Hmm. So that was the first time I, I think he got really, really, really angry. You know, other times I recognize, you know, some of the things that that weren't working. You know, so that a lot of times you you want to do comparisons. Right. And what I mean by that, you you, you want to show someone's their shortcomings or their failures and you do that by comparing them to you know uh, other very successful or historical leaders right so when you think about the middle east and you talk about uh, you know the arab culture you know the first or the most prominent person that comes to mind is gamal abdel nasser the founder of the pan-arab movement the leader of egypt he hated him he hated him and he didn't think he was all that worthy and and so that comparison failed miserably 
And then that's what kind of made me recognize and, and evolve. I remember sitting there in, in one of his palaces and I, everywhere you go, and it was engraved into the wall or etched into the wall, there was Hammurabi, Sargon, Nebuchadnezzar, and Salahuddin. Mm-hmm. So those were the four that he revered or valued. And then the comparisons became him against them versus modern day leaders because in his mind there weren't any modern day leaders that were worthy of comparison to to him it's it's so i i that's one of the biggest eye openers as i've been researching a lot of this is it's sort of like um it it's sort of like lebron james saying there's no one in the last 20 years or who's playing now that even is on my level so i'm comparing myself to like the very first yeah, to players. like Bill Russell, who's right. got eleven rings, and you know those. You know, again, uh, with every generation, you know, the you know, the uh, there's a there's a different mindset and different uh, kind of uh, standards. So for him, there was nobody uh, uh, on his level in modern times, which, in, in a sense, it made it it helped us because when you talk about you know Salahuddin or or uh, Hammurabi or Nebuchadnezzar, you know, those comparisons uh, worked in our favor. Yeah, so you're leveraging all of this data to try to gain more insight into who he is, what he's thinking, or what his next moves may have been. And and to kind of get him to to understand and accept uh, reality and and his fate. Was there in his mind a chance that he would just return to where he was or that this was just a temporary at the thing? beginning he they thought there was but of course as time went uh you know that we made it very clear that there was no coming back from from mm. this well i've got some crowdsourced questions okay so they're sort of along the same lines here so you already kind of answered a few of them one of the questions is, is, how did Saddam or people close to him justify his actions? They they didn't justify his actions. They blamed him for everything, which is not surprising, right? So uh, after their capture, you know, so for example, you know, my team and I, we interviewed Tarek Aziz, we, uh, uh, Taha Yassin Ramadan, who was the vice president of Iraq, you know, Ali Hassan Al-Maji, better known as Chemical Ali, you know, so... So the, the senior leaders or the uh, a significant number of uh, the Revolutionary Command Council, you know, but they all were very quick to put blame on Saddam, minimize their role. And, and, and what he told me about them was, is that, you know, of course, he didn't trust them fully and didn't rely on them in an intellectual sense. You know, he needed them and needed their loyalty, not their talents. He didn't, he, he openly admitted he didn't select people based on talent. He selected based on loyalty. Mm -hmm. So even though if you would have brought up to him or if you did brought up to him, like some of the things that he had done that had been pretty evil, there was no remorse or there was no sort of, this is why I did that or. Oh no, there, there was, so, so there was no remorse or regret, but there was, uh, there wasn't, I wouldn't say he tried to justify it, but he did say, for example, he owned his decisions and he said, or admitted to why he did some of those things. You know, for example, you know, when we talk about the gassing of the Kurds in his mind, the Kurds were committing treason because they were helping Iranian 
forces sneak into Iraqi territory through the Kurdish passes. So they were helping a declared enemy of Iraq who was in a declared war. So he, he looked at me, he's like, uh, in the United States, treason is punishable by what? And in theory, in the United States, treason is punishable by death, but there's a legal process with right. due rights and due process and all those kinds of things, right? So that's how he justified uh, you know, some of that it was necessary. That That's the word. He, he felt it was the right thing for him to do within his leadership. Absolutely. And then, he, you know, he told me how difficult it is to be a leader, you know, but a leader has to make those difficult or decisive decisions. It was necessary, you know, during the 91 uprising, they were committing treason again. And as a result, he had to put the revolt down. Yeah. That's one of the other pieces is obviously 20 years have passed. So now you have people with all kinds of narratives about who he was and what he did. Um, and that's something that I'm wondering, did your opinion of him change and has it changed 20 years later? So my opinion of him hasn't changed. And what I mean by that is in a sense, the, the horrific atrocities that he was responsible for, the impact of those atrocities hasn't really diminished. When you think about, you know, the gassing and, and the uh, the three major wars and all of the lives lost and everything like that. So in that sense, no. Now that I'm retired and uh, I, I am entitled to have my own opinion and I, I do wonder, you know, looking back, is Iraq better since we removed Saddam Hussein? Now, that's a very difficult question. I think it would be very hard to find... A lot of people who say, and again, I'm not questioning the, the decision to remove Saddam. There were a lot of legitimate reasons. But can you look now and say, is Iraq better 20 years later without Saddam Hussein? And I think it would be very hard for people to say yes. And that's kind of one of the questions that I was a little nervous to ask you about, because as an Assyrian and what's happened to Assyrian people over the last 20 years in Iraq, like there's significantly less Assyrian people there now. Absolutely. Uh, again, unfortunately, you know, Assyrians have, have been the victims, you know, in that part of the world for for centuries. But, you know, the Assyrians suffered significantly under ISIS when ISIS took control uh, of uh, parts of Iraq, of course, you know, they immediately focused on on the Assyrians because of our religion and our belief, and a lot of Assyrians were forced to uh, to flee uh, their homes and the country, exiled and all over the the world. So you know the Assyrians have have suffered significantly. I I wonder to myself when I think about your role and all of that and just the weight of having to interview this person and interrogate him and then seeing all that happen, do you wish you would have done anything differently? No, not, not from an operational perspective. Absolutely not. Uh, again, as I mentioned, you know, when I was in the, in the midst of the interrogation, you really don't have time to think about anything else. You're so focused. There's so much going on uh, that, you know, between interviewing him and the others, the research, the report writing, the updates, all of that. It was an exhaustive period. And you know, so you, you didn't really have a lot of time to sit there and contemplate, uh, you know, things. So for me, you know, at the looking back, 
you know, I was I was very cautious, of course, because of the significance and the importance. I could have probably been a little more aggressive, but in reality, I don't think I would have changed anything. So, so going back to your mission there and understanding the ties with Al Qaeda, is that one of those things that you can't share more about? So, a significant portion of the interrogation was declassified, but not all of it. Okay. There's a couple of aspects of it that remain classified that you know, of course, I can't talk about. I can give you an, a, a broad overview of you know the the relationship between Iraq and Al Qaeda, but I can't give you the you know the specifics. Well, I'm glad we hit that milestone <laughs> in the podcast. I wanted to ask a few more questions around this and then dig in a little bit about your book. And I've got uh, some other fun stories. So, okay. I mean, you did such a good job of actually getting to know him. I I know you went with him to the hospital. Absolutely. And that was just you and him. And a- yep. I took him to the hospital. I took him to, the, to court. I dealt with his medical issues. I dealt with his fear of flying, all of those kinds of things that, you know, no one has ever, you know, had experienced with him and all of those that you really can't uh, summarize or, or you know, put a value to. Can you tell us about the white horse story? Uh, the white horse story. <laughs> so the, the white horse story is, is more of a, you know, kind of a, a, a joke or a, a way to, uh, to break up the uh, you know the the presentation. So, if so, prior to the war, it was Iraqi law that every Iraqi office, government building, home had a picture of Saddam Hussein. And then, of course, you know, on every street corner there was a uh, you know a, a bulletin board or a, a, you know one of those huge signs um, you know that would have pictures of you know Saddam. His favorite photo of himself was him in a uniform riding a white horse. And, you know, when I give my keynote addresses to help inspire, you know, the next generation of leaders or FBI folks or things like that or to promote the FBI. So I talk about that particular picture because that was his favorite photo because it 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 depicts him in the way he wanted people to remember him. He was in uniform, so saying that he was a warrior. You know, he had a sword that was very visible because in his mind, he was the third greatest warrior in Arab Muslim history, only third to only the Prophet Muhammad, Salah al-Din, who recaptured Jerusalem. And then, you know, it's Saddam Hussein. And then he's riding a white horse. And when you think about it from a, you know, a fairy tale perspective or, mm. you know, that who rides a white horse, mm-hmm. it's, you know, the, the hero. So I have the opposite. I'm riding a white donkey and I do that <laughs> comparison between, you know, how he saw things and, you know, how I saw things. Yeah, that was one I got a real good chuckle out of. And then um, I know you sent you gave him some of your mom's cookies. Absolutely. So I didn't ship them. She shipped them. Right. So my parents at the time had no idea what I was doing. So I wasn't allowed to tell anyone what I was doing. Uh, my parents knew I was in Iraq for my second tour of uh, uh, of three. And as you can imagine, my parents were not very excited. I made a big mistake when I came back from my first tour in Iraq. I, you know, I was uh, talking to my dad and I was, I told him too many stories about, you know, some of the cool things that I was doing in Iraq and, you know, some of the the dangerous situations that I was uh, involved in and, you know, some of those kinds of things. 
So it scared my mom, of course, you know, being a typical Assyrian mom. So when I went back to Iraq, she thought I was going to be in those kinds of situations again. And, uh, you know, so they were not thrilled about it. So I asked her to send me a care package and it was my mom who FedExed them from from Turlock all the way to, you know, to 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 Baghdad and, uh, you know, and then sent them. And I wanted them for, you know, for his for his birthday. Because, you know, I talked about my mom a lot because when I studied Saddam, you know, the only person that Saddam truly cared for and the only person that cared for Saddam and had any influence was his mom. He didn't know his father. Saddam didn't have a father. So his mom yeah. you know, was really, really important. And then you add the cultural importance, you know, uh, you know, the most important woman in an Arab man or an Assyrian man's life yeah. is. The mom. Always will be the mom, yeah. you know, so and, and so we talked about that. So sharing my mom's cookies was another step in kind of, you know, cementing that, uh, you know, that connection. And as you were sharing all that, now I want to know when you get home and you tell your parents <laughs> or you tell your family. Like, first of all, you told no one. No, you, you couldn't tell like any human being. No. Hey, I'm going to interrogate Saddam Hussein. No. So then when was the first chance you were able to share? So when I came back, I came to visit my um, my parents uh, I was at my <laughs> parents' house. I remember it very clearly because I came, uh, arrived at, uh, like a late afternoon or evening. Uh, and so the next morning we're sitting in the kitchen. My dad and I were having uh, coffee at the kitchen table and we were talking and I was telling him about some of the things. My mom's in the kitchen I remember she was at the stove and then I remembered sharing her cookies with him. And I, you know, I look over and I tell her I gave him your cookies and all that. And she hit me. Wow. <laughs> of course, you know, in a loving, you, yeah, know, kind yeah. of a, you know, funny gesture. But yeah, that was her initial reaction. But they were just shocked. They oh, yeah. were absolutely. And do you, you guys talk about it a lot? <laughs> I'm sure they've had six hour interviews with you. Yeah, right? I mean, they, uh, you know, uh, at this point, you know, we don't, you know, talk about it that much anymore. But, yeah. You know, at 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 the time, you know, they were, of course, very proud and you know, very supportive. And but, you know, uh, over time, it kind of, it's it's old news at this point. It's old news at yeah. this point. Yes. Well, it's still amazing news, and it's still interesting. The only other question around Saddam Hussein is, did he share anything with you that was helpful? Like, were you able to get from him the data you needed? Absolutely. He, he told us what we were truly looking for, both as it pertained to WMD and to, to the extent or the true nature of the relationship between Iraq and Al-Qaeda. And so. did you find the WMD? There Obviously, there wasn't any. And what was that like? So it was it became evident that Iraq didn't have the WMD that we suspected, so our direction was okay find out why we were wrong about iraq's wmd and what were saddam's long-term intentions okay. and that's what we focused on yeah. you know most people didn't really understand and appreciate saddam feared iran mm -hmm. uh, his next door neighbor uh, it wasn't the united states or it wasn't even israel it was iran he fought an eight-year war and a in a war that he almost lost and it wasn't uh, for his far more developed weapons capability in wmd he would have absolutely lost that war 
1987 that was called the War of the Cities, and that's where he was able to strike deep into Tehran and bring Iran to its knees and force Ayatollah Khomeini to the negotiating table. In his mind, if Iran, if Iran became aware of how weak and vulnerable he had become, nothing would have stopped it from right. reinvading and taking the two holy Shiite places. So he bluffed his biggest enemy into believing he still was as dangerous as he had been in the uh, late 80s. And that was his plan and intent. And at the same time, it was you know, he made a significant effort to lift sanctions. So we really understood how he manipulated and misled not only his subordinates, but the rest of the world to achieve his goal, a risk taker. You know, but when you're a brutal dictator, there are no checks and balances. And, and yeah, he had to intimidate people. He had to use that. So thanks for all of that. Now we want a more challenging topic. <laughs> Uh, jiu-jitsu and yes. uh, you're retired now when did you retire so I retired exactly a year ago one year you've been retired yes wow so what what's that been like for you it's been amazing you know of course uh, not including my my uh, military service you know when I retired I had nearly 34 years of law enforcement experience or, or service so so you're you know, just I, a civilian now I'm a civilian now <laughs> sort of yes <laughs> But, you know, so for me, I'd, I'd achieved everything I ever wanted to and, 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 and more in my law enforcement career. And I felt it was it was time for me to, you know, to not only retire, but to pursue other, you know, the other opportunities or, or passions, including, you know, the writing of a of a book. You know, this is the 20 year anniversary of the Iraq war. And I kind of, you know, recognize the importance of uh, of releasing the book and and taking advantage of the anniversary and and the focus on Iraq and and Saddam you know for the for the release of the book and and I'm hoping the timing does does work out plus as you mentioned I had a second career and a second passion and I wanted to take a couple of years and really devote myself and really commit myself full-time laser focused on on that and see how far I could take it and uh, how good I can get and, and, and things like that. So I retired and now I spend the majority of my retirement as a full-time professional BJJ fighter uh, with American Top Team, which is the, 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 the team that I train under and belong to in, in South Florida and, you know, and getting ready for the next level of uh, uh, adventure. You were a champion, right? Like a Gi world champion? Uh, yes, I won the uh, World No Gi Championship last de- December, and you know, training to to defend it, you know, uh, this year at the end of the year. Are you a black belt? I'm a brown belt. Brown belt. Okay. Yes. When when's your next match? So I'm I'm in the midst of training now. Uh, you know, the one thing with with uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu injuries are, yeah. uh, are are common. So I'm I'm recovering from a, a recent injury. Uh, I anticipate my next uh, tournament or fight will be, you know, either October. I'm sorry, August or September. Okay, so yeah. coming up. Coming up. Um, what do you think of Benil Dariush? Oh my God, I'm a huge Benny fan. Right, uh, of course, I'm extremely proud of, uh, uh, you know, the fact that we have a an Assyrian uh, at that at that level. You know, he is, uh, you know, one of the elite uh, fighters, and uh, I've actually tried to uh, meet. Uh, Benil and hope at one you know at, at one point I'll, I'll have the opportunity to meet him 
he's been so accessible to the Assyrian community. I actually got to interview him as well. And honestly, you two have uh, same demeanor in many ways. You're very direct and think through your thoughts really well. So I don't think you'd have too much trouble really connecting with him. Um, but yeah, that that is so cool. I just figured you would be a big fan because I'm a huge fan. You know, there are a lot of things that I, I really respect and admire about Benil, his work ethic, his training, you know, his faith, his commitment uh, to family, our, you know, our culture, our history, all of those things. And, you know, again, it, it really does make me proud to see an Assyrian so accomplished, especially in, in you know, in that arena, in, in that field. Yeah, well, um, it sounds like this last year for you has been an amazing adventure. So that theme runs throughout your life. Tell me when your book is coming out. So hopefully the book is going to come out uh, December of this year. Okay. And the goal is to try to time it with the capture of Saddam Hussein. So December uh, of this year will be 20 year uh, anniversary of his capture and kind of want to you know, leverage that. Uh, I can't that. wait to read that. Oh, thank you. Have you been working on that for a while? Started working on it uh, again uh, when I retired. Uh, the book proposal was approved by the FBI, and I'm working with an an incredible writer uh, who's uh, actually helping me write and yeah. uh, hopefully uh, sign with uh, Simon & Schuster. That's the publishing company out of New York. They're and huge. hopefully, yes. Yeah. So hopefully it'll be out, uh, you know, at the end of the year. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and then will there be an audiobook version? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you got to have it. And are you going to be the reader for the audio? Uh, I hope you are. I hope you are. <laughs> we'll see. And then, if, you know, my goal at, at that point is, you know, uh, uh, as I promised my mom, you know, is to is to have a, uh, a, a book release, book signing here in Turlock. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I will be there. there, you know, for, you know, for our, our Assyrian community. Yeah, the Assyrian community, we love stories like this and we loved it. You know, all my life, I've heard so many stories of Assyrians who have been in very unique positions. Um, and when I think that of everyone on the planet, you were the one chosen to do that job. And it's just uh, it's a testament to, I think, who Assyrians are and then who you are and all of your hard work and dedication. Well, thank you. But, you know, as my my parents, especially my dad, has instilled in, in us, you know, the importance of our history, culture, tradition. Uh, you know, we can't overlook that and, you know, what, what we represent, where we've come from and where we're going. It, it is imperative that we take pride in that and continue to, you know, to promote uh, our, our, not only our history, but what our potential is and what our capabilities are as, you know, as a community and as people. And this question, if we want to talk about it off air, it's cool. Okay. If, so, but... Do you think there's any hope for Assyrians in Iraq of establishing themselves to uh, have their own place there? I hold out hope for that. You know, my my issue and frustration and anger is that you know, uh, I, I wish we would be more united. You know, there's uh, there's it's okay to disagree and, and everything like that internally, but externally, we should be very united. We should be extremely protective and look at what's in, in the entire Assyrian population's mm -hmm. best interest instead of individual groups or mm -hmm. individuals themselves. And until we reach that point, we're never going to be accomplished the way we should be 
until you know we get that. So the greatest mission facing Assyrians is unity. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We're even here in Turlock or in other. Anywhere. We're still, we we're don't still, support each other the we way don't. we should. We're too divided. Yeah. And as a result, that serves our enemy. Yep. Uh, because they they take advantage of our division. Well, last question. It's a question we ask everyone who's on the Assyrian podcast is if you can say one thing to all the Assyrians all around the world that are listening to the podcast, what would you like to say to them? Well, I would say a couple of things. One, never forget who you are, right? Being an Assyrian is, is a blessing. When you look at our history, where we come from, what we represent, the strength and honor that our ancestors have uh, accomplished, that should never be forgotten, dismissed, should be not only appreciated, but you know, promoted. The second thing I would say, the only person that can stop you from uh, accomplishing your goals is yourself. There, are, there will be challenges, there will be hurdles, there will be difficulties, but at the end of the day, the only one that can dictate who you are and what you accomplish in life is you. If you set your mind to it and you work hard, you can accomplish it. And I tell everybody, everybody wants to be a champion, but not everybody's willing to do what it takes to be a champion. And, and at the end of the day, only you can dictate that. Hey, it's been such a pleasure and blast to have you on the Assyrian podcast. Thank you so much. I have five hours more worth of questions, <laughs> but I know we have company. <laughs> well, thank yes. you so much, George. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Assyrian Podcast. We'd love for you to share this episode with friends or family who you think would find it interesting. We'd also love for you to share with us any recommendations of people you think we should interview, or if you would like to host an episode, we'd love for you to reach out. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.